Good morning. Happy Thursday. Happy October 1st. Welcome to Adam versus the Man. It's been an amazing week so far. A lot of fun covering a lot of news. Really, really feeling our roots as a show, getting into what it means to look at the world as a libertarian. And right now, you know, I, I guess I'm just, I'm in a different kind of good mood today. You know, would you, would you want to live in boring times? And they say this, this, this Chinese saying, right, the uh, may you be blessed to live in interesting times is intended as a curse. But I don't know. Just based on my general life philosophy, and this is like totally separate from libertarianism, um, I mean, maybe not totally separate, but just, I want to live big. I want to enjoy life. I You get one turn on this planet and make the most of it. Go to Mars, make it a turn on two planets. But my point stands. International space settlement, interplanetary species achievement. Regardless, what we have here is just too good of an opportunity to do anything less than fully enjoy it. And as I was sitting down, getting uh, our headlines together, getting ready to do the show today, I was just thinking, uh, well, actually, I had, I, had, I had kind of a weird morbid fantasy, to be honest, starting with, well, what if I had to stop doing this? And I mean, speaking out on a regular basis, you know, and, and, and I mean, doing the show the way that I'm doing now, it is so... Uh, satisfying. I mean, it is such an honor to have an, an active, engaged audience that makes it possible for me to do this and not feel like I'm just screaming into the darkness. But to be able to sit down and and say, you know, I, I'm going to look at the world. I'm going to... Well, the other day we came up with the analogy that it's like we are the uh, the mama bird chewing up the worm that is the mainstream media headlines and, and pre-digesting it for all all you baby birds in the audience. But obviously that's a very silly, simplistic, and inaccurate metaphor for what we do at the show. And we, the Producers Club, really putting together the stories for the show, and of course the core team, Jim and CJ uh, and, and Marcus and myself. But, you know, this, you know, to... To be in a position to share a, a perspective like this every day, it's it, it it really is an honor, and and to think that not only is it something that that we're, where we live in a time where like this is I don't I don't want to you know like oversell what I'm doing here you know looking at the news looking at the world as a pundit you know, ranting every day and, and giving you my interpretations and analysis of, of current events. And, you know, like it's become really important to me recently to realize that one of the problems with what the mainstream media has become is in the nature of the 24-hour news cycle and and the competition and the corporatism and, and, and the limitation of it by government, obviously, but where it's be afraid of this now, today, be afraid, be very afraid, be more afraid of what I'm telling you to be afraid of than what those other guys are telling you to be afraid of. Watch me be afraid. And if, 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 if I, and sometimes 
I, I do, I get caught up in that myself with Adam versus the man. And, I, and I'm like, I'll do a week and it's all just like boom, 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 boom. And, and, and there have been a lot of weeks like that lately. But I think it's especially valuable to be able to bring a greater time perspective to current events, to understanding our world. And it, in terms of not wanting to oversell it, you think about, you know, maybe in a few decades, technology and human reality, you know, something on the scale of chips in our brains or uh, uploading our consciousnesses to, to, to computers uh, or into robots, you know, whatever, or, or just living on other planets. You know, maybe the idea of tuning in to listen to one dude tell you what he thinks is important about what's going on in the world, like, like it just won't even be a thing anymore. And in a sense, I look forward to that, and I think that, that a part of what we're doing is pushing towards that. And... I don't want to oversell it in the sense of like that we're we're like the first human beings that sailed across the Atlantic on on little rafts or or across the Pacific, you know, whoever who I don't know who did it first, I don't care. Um, you know, the, 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 there's a certain pioneering nature of what we are doing as humanity moves forward into the asymptote right now, in terms of addressing <clears throat> the last great injustices of the world, talking about freedom, addressing the injustices of government, of, of institutions, of coercion. So I, I want, I, I hope that what I'm able to share in a perspective like that through this show and with what we're doing with this show is enough that you in the audience at least feel a piece of that. And I, I'm pretty confident in saying that, you know, our, our producers club and our, and our production team, they, they have a sense of that. And that's why they're motivated to be involved and to, to help spread this message and, and build this production and this conversation around the message of freedom. So if you're not yet in the producers club, I hope you can join us. Now, I don't know, Jim, Jim, get yourself up on stage here. Producer Jim is filling in as, as common Jim Freedom normally he is now. Producer Jim Freedom coming to us from Phoenix again, filling in for CJ. Uh, Jim, does that does, does that make sense, or was that just like my, you know, stoner morning ramble to start the show today? Uh, well, it made sense to me. I mean, it, it possibly could be argued to be a little bit of both, but it still makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it's sort of like, in a way... We're, we, we are not yet speaking to the mainstream. I know. I know this. I don't pretend that you know this show. This show is even you know tailored to a mainstream audience really yet. And it might be you know as it grows, as it develops, and as, as the Freedom Factory should be here within a week, even though yesterday was the day of eight weeks. Yeah, I told. Remember, I called and I said I wouldn't be surprised if they were like, yeah, it's going to be a week or two because of the Rona. Yeah, it's about another week, <laughs> and who knows with delivery. But it's on track, so the Freedom Factory should be here shortly. And, uh, you know, I, in a way, we're speaking to the remnant, right? The people, the, 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 those those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. So, so I'm, I'm so misquoting something biblical, aren't I? 
probably. <laughs> I don't remember what it is exactly, but yeah, I know what you're going for. So the producers club. I mean, Jim, it's been it's been a blast. It's been a really fun conversation there. Um, we got we, you know we've had a bunch of five dollar patrons join us lately, and thank you to them. And and uh, I really appreciate everybody who signs up. But it's it's kind of weird. I mean, do we do we want to like uh, lower the threshold? I don't know. It's like ten dollars is where it's at. Sign up for ten dollars. Join the producers club. Why should people join the producers club, Jim? People should join the Producers Club because it's basically a group think uh, of like-minded individuals. We share links and articles of stuff that's going on today, and uh, it's 24-7 access to an open conversation with you, the star of the show, and uh, me and CJ and Marcus and all of our other all, all of our other core team. Well, group think. I think you misspoke there. Group think means. That uh, we're, we're, artific- we're artificially led to think in unison, um, oh, but no, okay. it's like the opposite of groupthink. Uh, groupthink is like a, a, a more specific psychological term for uh, herd mentality in a small group. Oh, okay, well, I was thinking no, of like a brainstorming group. I guess mind. yeah, I misworded like it. There mind. you go. That's the hive mind of the show. Yeah, and there's plenty of debate and dissent and a lot of fun uh, conversation and sharing of links and brainstorming. And, you know, like when, um, you know, when, when I was focused on the presidential campaign, you know, we had a similar, you know, awesome core team conversation uh, around that. And it's, it's, uh, that's transformed into something else now. But this is, uh, you know, like this is where I'm connected and, and I'm really in on the screen. And we only have, uh, let's see, it's connecting. What do we have, like 23, 24 people? I think 24. Oh, well, yeah, we're incoming right now. Um, do we do we have a contest for today, Jim? I didn't think of one. Did you think of one? Uh, I did not think of one. I've been going back and forth with Mary Wilder, our winner from yesterday, and uh, or two days ago, I think it was, um, and she's been having issues getting connected for some reason. She had an invalid country code, so... Uh, I think she's got it figured out now, though, so we should be up to 25 here. So, All right, I mean, I think, I mean, I think we could do another best debate one again, and and this is you know really tied to uh, MakeThemDebate.com, and Mercedes, who's now officially my debate manager, which makes me feel really cool. Uh, but yeah, MakeThemDebate.com. We got the link up there. You can see my profile at slash debater slash Adam Kokesh. And this is, it's a really cool way to sponsor debates. I mean, it's just a way to have like money in escrow on a, on a credit or debit card. And, uh, if it gets to a certain amount or if you, uh, shame someone into not turning down that kind of money for, for charity, if they want to set it up that way. Uh, right now, wait, we had, supposed to be one more on here that I don't see. Maybe it's so like they're only, uh, I don't know if Mercedes is watching right now. Yeah, I should, just re- I should just reload this page. Um, I'm uh, I'm working on my hotspot on my laptop today, and it is like really slow. Like like uh, I couldn't load Gmail. I I, you know, I told you that before. It's weird, you know. I uh, it's like there's the, the, the we're we're starting to see glitches in the matrix. You know, I haven't starting to, but. 
um, it, it kind of gives me hope when when I see things getting to, to like these specific failures. You know, one of the stories uh, that that we've got today is about food shortages, and another about uh, food boxes, and uh, it's. You know, like things like that, and the internet failing or phone service, like nine one one, right? We brought you that story earlier this week. Nine one one failed for a few hours because of a Microsoft three sixty five outage. That it's just it's tragic, man. But I, I, I want to think that if if I was one of the puppet masters. String pullers, one of the people really like actively driving the, uh, you know, all the policy around Corona right now. I would say, okay, it's time to back off. They're going to start getting pissed. <laughs> you know, like I put, we pushed it pretty far, and uh, and we got to back off. Anyway, was that you? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, makethemdebate.com. There's a there's a debate there somewhere, uh, a me, Webster, Tarpley, and that's the one I really want to see. And, you know, Jim, I meant to talk about this yesterday and and put this in the notes because this is, this is really weird. If you go to YouTube, now this was I, – I tried this on my phone and on desktop, and I don't know if it's changed now, um, but one of, one of my popular longer videos – well, it's like – I think it's like 45 minutes – was me debating Webster, Tarpley – at Bilderberg 2012. So it was an eight-year-plus-old video. And uh, it, it got to uh, about 100,000 views, like, pretty quick, and then totally plateaued. Uh, and now you, I couldn't find it. Uh, searching Kokesh Tarpley, it, it actually, I found it on other channels first. Like, it, it, at very least, my version of it, is Barry, which is just like, I mean, I hate to complain. It's like censorship works even when it doesn't. But, yeah, that's the one, Kokesh versus Tarpley. Are, are you looking at that on uh, on my – where are you looking at that? Uh, <laughs> uh, on the – I don't know. No, no, what website? I'm like, I can't because my screen's too dim. I can't see. But, yeah, that's the video. And so to have, so it was really me interviewing him, but doing a pretty good job as an interviewer of, of poking holes in his leftist ideology. So I really want to see it again. I mean, right now I can't even load YouTube. It says I'm to, uh, totally says I'm connected here. All right. Well, I got a, I got a, I got a notification to let you know about a surprise actually for you since we, there it is right there. Hold up. There's no audio on it though. But uh I want you know, for one, I wanted to mention happy birthday to our executive producer CJ. You know you know it was his birthday today? I happy did birthday, not CJ, my friend. Well no and, uh, uh, no no it's well it's not it's not really his birthday today. No. Yeah. I mean I thought you knew this about CJ. His actual birthday is November tenth. Because it was on November 10, 1775, that the Continental Congress decreed that two battalions of, of Marines be raised. And we have henceforth. <laughs> 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 
Well, with that being said, I, I got to let you know, I, I thought you might have figured it out by the fact that I didn't even know what website was being displayed right there. Uh, but I'm not actually producing today. We tricked you. CJ is backstage oh, today. Right. He's the one who sent us the link. All right. CJ's back with us. What's Welcome up, back, brother. Jim. I'm out of the cornfields. I'm ready to produce. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it is my birthday, my second birthday, I guess. All right. Your your biological birthday. Yeah, my, 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 my uh, status birthday, correct. Status birthday. Right? <laughs> no, no, your non-status birthday. Your Marine Corps birthday is way more status. Oh, yeah. Oh, I guess. I guess. So, yeah, looking forward to a good show, Adam. Well, hey, are are you uh, are are you done? Done? Did the harvest end early? I mean, it's yeah, well, we had a frost, and then it, so most farmers are combining and not doing silage. So we lost uh, we lost some jobs, and I mean, it is what it is. But I'm ready to go back and and uh, work here and and uh, take the show to the next level. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna make some money doing Adam versus the man, doing no. what we really love here. But I, CJ, oh my God, it's awesome to have you back. Yep. All right. Well, any any uh, we got one more promotion, of course. I will know. CJ, CJ likes to disappear before I'm done with him. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, there we. He's already on it. One more promotion. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Cigarfederation.com. This is a really awesome deal we have with my staff sergeant from when I was in Iraq. A, a man who I can say uh, legit saved my life a few times. And uh, now you can go and get 10% off your order of anything you want at CigarFederation.com with promo code ADAM10. That's A-D-A-M, all caps, one zero. And, yeah, JSK Nugs, CJ's showing them right there. And uh, those are uh, my favorites. They, they're they're uh, CBD-infused uh, uh, cigars. They're just amazing. Okay, so, CJ – Get get back on stage here, because now that you're, I want to talk. This is this is this is really weird. Is there something on our Webster Tarpley video? Because look, when I search YouTube, I'm on my channel. Searched Webster, ton of other stuff comes up. But if I go and I know because I did this the other day on on my phone. If I go to, and I, I really need to look into this. If I go to where my cre- uh, managed videos, like in the creator studio, the YouTube back end, I can search for Webster Tarpley or Webster, and, and, and I'll find it. Uh, well, I can obviously look and see if it's there and, and get back to you by the end of the show or next time I come on. I'll look into it. All right. Well, I've got, I've got it here loading very, very what slow. Web, what website were you watching it on there, CJ? Uh, that was blog board, I believe, for you or something along those lines. I just lost the yeah. there, but yeah, if you do a blog, Google search for it, I'll bet not yeah. a, a YouTube search. It's blog. weird. This video is this weird as this this video is being shat. This video in particular, I think, is being shadow banned on YouTube, singled out, and it's 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 kind of weird. It makes me want to debate Webster Tarpley again all the more. But if you want to go watch that video, uh, it's not it's not impossible to find if you just search Adam Kokesh. And yes, my last name is not spelled how it sounds. I don't know how would you spell my last name for my it's, okay, okay. it's actually on your YouTube page if you search it here. Uh, it's on uh, Revolution Road uh, before leaving Earth. Uh, so there's a few places you can find it on YouTube. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I have no – I mean, of course it would be nice if you could watch it on my channel as easily as, as anything else. But I have, I'm, I'm more interested in people watching this and letting me know what you think and then getting hyped about seeing me debate Webster Tarpley again and going to MakeThemDebate.com and pledging a few dollars so that we can make this happen because I think it's going to be a lot of fun, yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, they can make it happen. Sponsor this debate. There it is. But he should, he should go and claim his profile, so maybe reach out to him to claim his profile and more people would be apt to, to sponsoring it if they knew he had claimed it. Hmm. Yeah, I'll see if I can uh, – Maybe, maybe he'll respond to me on Twitter. Remind, remind me. At the, well, here, I'll, I'll make a note for the end of the show. You guys can't hear uh, my puppy barking in the distance there, can you? Barely. No, but uh, I will take a moment to do my producer, executive producer duties, and I'll let you know to go to Adam versus the man, go to the shop. I know Mr. Barry Hill just bought himself a tie-dye tea. I know that uh, we had Craig buying the fanny pack. Uh, I know that Mercedes still wants them freedom panties. I know his laptop sleeve, and uh, you would like to get that uh, beanbag chair. So you can get shop. Yeah, well, I'll be checking the mail tomorrow. I know we got some stuff waiting for us here. We'll have an we'll have an unboxing, or maybe I'll check the mail today. We'll have a little unboxing tomorrow. Uh, of course, always get your mugs. We got to get Jim. We got to get you one of these mugs. Yeah. We'll get yeah, you I'm going to get a Jim Freedom one. Get Jim Freedom ones. He's got Gardenia. I got the show mug, and you can get Jim Freedom mug. All right. So I, we got one other thing, I think, in administrative notes before we jump right into our headlines, and that's that we have an awesome guest coming on today. Um, uh, Andrew Jacobs is someone I've known for, uh, for, for several years, and I've – we have we, – he sends me really long text messages, and I go, "Wow, yeah!" Like I just it, for some, he's been a long time uh, petitioner, signature collector for uh, libertarian candidates because we we have to uh, you know clear these bullshit hurdles that the establishment in the in the form of their uh, election laws and Secretary of State policies uh, throw in our way. And what, what he does is go out and on the ground for a lot of different causes, sometimes for hire, sometimes as a volunteer and collect signatures. And so we're going to hear some really interesting stories from him, not just from the age of COVID, but from this uh, recent uh, the, the recent persecution of, of people collecting signatures that has, has really taken off. And uh, he's someone who doesn't speak publicly enough for someone who has his level of wisdom. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to get him on stage here. Now, I guess before we get to the main headlines, Jim, let's get this out of the way. Uh, CJ, if you skip ahead to our leadstories.com link. Fact check. Woman was not arrested for not wearing a mask. She was arrested for criminal trespassing. So the fact check here summarizes the story. Was a woman arrested at a middle school football game for not wearing a mask? No, that's not true. A video went viral showing a woman not wearing a mask at a football game in Logan, Ohio, and a police officer tasing her, pulling her in handcuffs, and taking her away. However, she was arrested on school property for criminal trespassing. 
not for not wearing a mask, the Logan Police Department said. Now, Jim, is there anything that I'm missing in background here? I know, uh, you know what, what's the venue, what's the circumstance, uh, what, what's the event? How did this come together? Uh, okay, so the venue is a middle school football game. You can see it there. As many people as show up at a middle school football game is just yeah. not that many. Uh, none of the cheerleaders were wearing masks. People were doing their social distancing thing. The lady that got arrested had a mask in her pocket, but and the cop wasn't wearing a mask at first, and then he had it down below his nose. Just all kinds of, of ridiculousness. But the, but the whole point of the story, though, is they're trying to frame it like they're trying to use legalese, basically. They're trying to use legal definitions and get people to say she was arrested for trespassing. But even in the article, it goes on to say that she was trespassed for, for refusing school policies, the school policy of not wearing a mask. So, you know what I mean? They're trying, like, they don't want us out there saying people were being arrested for not wearing a mask. So they're trying to get people to call it trespassing instead. Technically, legally, maybe that's right, but you see where I'm going with this. It's undeniable that the whole thing revolves around her refusal to wear a mask. So you got into a debate about this online. I did, yeah. I got yelled at a little bit. Basically, they were arguing that the school has the right to make that policy, and uh, if you don't like the mask policy, you can leave, and that they were justified in arresting this lady. And they said the same thing, uh, like they tried to argue that if they went into the football stadium naked, it'd be the same thing. I said, yeah, but if you go in there naked, are you going to be arrested for trespassing or are you going to be arrested for exposing yourself in front of minors? That's a whole different crime. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. No, no. Well, that's, yeah, you could get arrested for both, right? Or you could get, both. right? I mean, if you if, if, the, if the cops are nice and you're naked running across the field, I mean, if it's a middle school game and you're an adult, right. you're probably going to get charged with something else. If you're a college right. female doing it at a college game, You'll get ejected for trespassing, and the cops are probably not going to press any further charges, right? But the, uh, the con- other con- context the other Sorry, I was going to say the other important part of the argument, though, is whether or not the school. I was trying to argue that the school is public property; it's a public school, so they shouldn't right. be well, allowed so to make that, those that, mandates. Okay, so that's, that, that's a different layer of, of the debate here. Let's let's come back to that or or, or uh, of this analysis because. You were taking the position that she was arrested for not wearing a mask, and other people were arguing with you saying that that she was arrested for trespassing. And and this is a really dumb argument. Now, if there are people trying to further the propagandist agenda here of burying the story so that we don't have another famous uh, arrested for not wearing a mask or, or they can just kind of try to bury the story that way. I mean, it's a pretty weak attempt. I mean, it's pretty pathetic if they're really making an effort to bury the story because they're definitely getting some Streisand whiplash unintended consequences kind of effects with this at, at this point. Um, but you're, it, it's a really dumb argument uh, because there, it, it, it's dumb to argue about uh, because they're both technically correct. If the charge was trespassing, you can say she was arrested for trespassing. Like, that's that's what the 
it, it was for the word for here, right? It depends on what your definition of is is. But the word for is not only a word that has many multiple definitions, but applications, even in the definition that we're using it here with, of, of you know, of a cause related to, right, for, uh, in, in that sense. And so there's the, the legal way, you know, you could use that, apply that word and say she got arrested for trespassing. Why did she get arrested for trespassing? And now you get to the purpose and intent use of the word for or application of the word for. And that's a lot more useful, right? You know, like to ask, answer the question, why did she get arrested, you know, for trespassing? No, she got arrested for not wearing a mask, for being somewhere she was supposed to be without a mask. Now, technically, if that manifests as trespassing, it, it becomes kind of a semantics game. You know, like, did you get arrested for killing your roommate or did you get arrested for manslaughter? Like, both. Neither is really trying to spin it one way or another. One is just being specific about the act. One is being specific about the charge, the, the actual crime. So you might even make the case that technically it was trespassing in this legal framework that if you come here in a way that doesn't respect their policies, you're trespassing. That's what you're going to get removed for. But clearly the important interpretation and application of the, of, of the word for, right, is that she got arrested for not wearing a mask. Right. Right. Now, she, did she face charges? Like, is she actually going to be... I think she got released. Uh, I, I think she got cited and released in the parking lot or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not going to get... Yeah, they're not... Well, uh, not in America, at least. Uh, you know, we talked about this internationally that, you know, a lot of countries do have it worse. Uh, but, yeah, rarely in the U.S. will you, like, do overnight time even for not wearing a mask. Man, you know, yesterday I went to Flagstaff. I was running errands all afternoon, and yeah, it's 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 weird. It's it's zombie land, man. And you know, a, a lot of people are against this, and, and from what I understand now, they're against it, but they're just going along to get along. And there's something, you know, symbolic when you proactively put on a mask that signals to politicians you, you're, you're ready to submit. You're ready to comply. And I, I do think, you know, I, I don't, this isn't, you know, the end of the world. Uh, at least I don't think so. <laughs> uh, this isn't masks leading us off a cliff. And I'm not, I'm not I don't want to overblow the significance of masks. It's not like I mean, if you walk around with your wallet on your chest, you know, or around your neck that says, politicians, please take what you want, that would be a lot worse than wearing a mask, you know, like just, just for perspective, you know. Uh, but uh, it, it's like that. It's a milder form of that. Uh, and it's, it, it is disturbing, and it is worth fighting. And it, it is, at least in the United States, the, the, the masks, this is a really active battleground. People are getting arrested for not wearing masks. And I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, yesterday going, going around all the different shops that I went to, seeing way, like, and employees in Flagstaff universally masked. Um, I found that, you know, places like hardware stores, tractor supply, harbor freight, 
they're not uh, their customers are you know not not quite as strict as the staff. Uh, but everywhere else, I'm like the only one. You know, I go to Walmart, go to the drugstore, um, grocery stores. But it, what's crazy about it is that it, you know people don't believe in it because if they believed in it, you would get stopped and asked. You would get stopped and encouraged by other customers. Hey, can you do you ever do you have a medical exemption? Okay, well I'll respect that. Have a nice day, sir. Like people would ask. You know, like they wouldn't. You know, well I don't want to pry, but uh, can, do you mind telling me what your medical exemption is? And if they ask, they say, "Fucking sanity, right. science." Uh, you know, like uh, logic. And it's not that there's there's a real anti-science component to this that people don't realize that that pseudoscience manipulated by authority has reached a whole new level, and it's it's with the masks. And, and just to reiterate for people, wearing masks for prolonged periods has been shown in controlled studies in environments with proper control and experimental groups to increase the spread of viruses. It's not productive. Distancing, hygiene, quarantine for people who are sick, it's just like the flu. In that sense, if you're sick, stay home. And for a while, for a long time, I had to couch when I said it's like the flu. You know, it might be a, a, a bit more deadly. It might be, you know, a couple times more deadly. You know, and now you go... Probably less deadly, actually. After we got that 6% number from the CDC that only 6% of cases were just corona. And, and I get it. Yeah, it's an aggravating factor in the rest with people with pre-existing conditions. And it's too soon to tease apart exactly how deadly this virus is or what a special threat it is. But it's not the thing is it's not. We can say decisively it's not a special threat, first of all. That of all the regular events in this great global human petri dish the, the, the great human family the, the whole a uh, lot of everything that we're subjected to on a regular basis of viruses that get out there and, and like I, I i could say still at worst this is a funky off-season flu right uh just in terms of putting it in in perspective with what we understand and none of it justifies i mean not only is, is wearing masks counterproductive but None of it justifies any coercive interference with people's freedoms and economic lives. And it, it I'm, I'm still optimistic that, that there's going to be a major, you know, a, a great leap forward of awareness that comes out of this. But uh, when, when I hear that people are still making this argument, you know, for, no, it was trespassing. <laughs> Even even among you know even among our friends and libertarians you know I think we have a tendency to take it for granted that everybody who says I'm a libertarian is on the same page and and those of us who you know get our heads so deep in the game often end up with our heads up our asses assuming that everybody who calls themselves uh, a libertarian is as informed as we are. There's a much bigger information war and paradigm war and, and you know uh, some people think we're coming to a breaking point. I I um I'm I'm more inclined to believe that change happens slowly, subtly, and that the real positive news in many ways is hidden from us. And so 
I hope we can bring it to you here on, on Adam versus the man and have, you know, the conversations like this and raise these debates and hopefully provide at least a little perspective and enlightenment. Right, Jim? Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Anything else you want to say about this case? Uh, well, just really quick, just a real quick opinion from you about the, uh, the public status, the fact that it's a public school. Oh, right. Is, would, you, could, would you say this lady's rights yeah. were violated, or do you think this public school is justified in making that policy? So we have a really dangerous, false concept of property to begin with. And, and general lack of respect for it. So, the to, to put it in real terms, for this woman to have a claim of ownership there, uh, you know, you, you have to point you you have to acknowledge that she's been stolen from as a taxpayer, and that every taxpayer then inherently has equal access to every government facility. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think, I mean, I don't, I don't say that's not fair. I mean, in a sense, that's true, but it's not, it doesn't give you a practical way out of this. And, you know, there is a communal claim to ownership there, but not to access. And so for an institution like this, and I hate to sound like I'm defending government, but if you, you know, apply libertarian principles to this superficially and go, well, she was stolen from and therefore, uh, you know, she has claim to ownership and therefore has access. First of all, you're making a leap from ownership to access, right? Like, you know, I, I just because I own one share in Tesla doesn't mean that I can walk into the factory whenever I feel like it and just start moving shit around and say, but I own one share's worth of this. So, no, that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, and, and, I, and again, I'm not, but you have, again, I'm not saying this to defend the state, but in the framework that we have accepted for a practical functioning society, that she she is kind of accepted by sending her kid to this middle school, assuming she's a parent and not just some creeper, right? Um, that uh, she or or that she has you know whatever teacher or you know uh, relative or friend. Or she, was par- she was a parent of the yeah. opposing team's football game. Ah. ah. Oh, the plot thickens. There's that other ring. Oh, let's get let's get down. She's cheering for the the visitors. Let's get her out of the stands. Okay, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I doubt that was a significant motivator. Um, but uh, even if she was a parent at the school there, and, and you kind of accept, so here she's a guest uh, of a community where sensibly she doesn't even pay taxes, right? If these schools are funded, now I know. The, the the money that goes to every government school is so convoluted, and as long as there's money from the federal government, you know, every American could say they have a claim to it. But hypothetically, it's funded from funded from local property taxes primarily. And so a visiting parent would be a guest there and wouldn't have such a claim. But in the sense that she's a taxpayer and everybody has claims because it's all in this government network of schools and you're a guest and this is normal usage, whatever. Um, uh, even if she was a parent at that school or a local property taxpayer, uh, I don't think that gives her, her access uh, in this current framework. That being said, obviously, the government's claim to ownership of that property really is invalid in the first place because it's it's based on theft. Um, but, you know, we, we still have to accept a practical framework for property usage in, in this uh, existing context. And in a way, I, 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 I don't want to blame the victim, but when you consent to, you know, you're sending your kid to a government school, 
you're you're going and stepping on government property because it's not public property; it's government property, right? Realistically, how's you know how, how is it actually you know ownership? You can say claim to ownership, but ownership, what does it really mean? But you have control. And, you know, we, we have all these constructs around property, like, because society acknowledges or recognizes that you own it, then you own it. Uh, and there's a certain, there's a, there's a lot of subjective nature to that. Uh, but in this case, uh, no, I, I don't think that plays in, in favor, but that, you know, of her having a claim, but that does make their policy of singling her out for not wearing a mask all the more ridiculous, uh, doing that to someone who's a guest. Yeah. And it's, it's not just, it would be one thing if everybody was taking it really seriously and really believed in it. And I, I would concede if they really believed in it. But when you say the cheerleaders aren't wearing masks and players aren't wearing masks and cops come up not wearing masks, no. Right. No. No, you have no leg to stand on. All right, I think we've covered that sufficiently, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're good right. to go. Let's see, if we, before we get to our guest, if we can blaze through uh, a few headlines here. Though, let me see, I'm supposed to, i got to get my calendar pulled up here. Uh, where, did I lose my calendar? That doesn't make sense. All right, well, pull it up here again and make sure that I have the full intro ready for our guest. Maybe it'll pull up in the next few minutes after I cover a few stories here. All right. First major headline today from Reuters.com. TV news networks hope to reap ad windfall from U.S. election chaos. And, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, well, if it's happening, it's happening with their permission, right? Television news networks will benefit from a U.S. presidential race that may not be decided on election night. Now, I, I know this this is going to sound really conspiratorial, right? Because I've been telling you for years that the, the media has an incentive uh, just without getting conspiratorial at all. They have an incentive to increase their own bottom line. They are businesses first and foremost. And so even if you're CNN... Yeah, and and in the bag for the Democrats, if if, if you believe that, uh, you're still going to want to promote stories about Donald Trump questioning the election results. You're because that's and 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 ultimately, like you know, like do you do you care? Like do you do you really care if it's Trump or Biden? I mean, I, I, I imagine if you're CNN and, and Trump, remember the famous tweet where he tweeted himself and some WWF thing, but not World Wildlife Fund. This is when it was Wrestling Federation, I think, before it was WWE, body slamming somebody, but they had the CNN logo over that. that was like, you know, like he's body slamming CNN. <laughs> you know, you see, they're all in, it, in on this together. And, and the pro wrestling analogy is really good. My friend Glenn Jacobs who's uh, mayor of a small town in Tennessee right now, uh, I met years and years ago. I mean, like, when I was still doing a Rock Veterans Against the War, gosh, back 2008 or nine at Liberty Forum in, uh, in New Hampshire, hosted by the Free State Project. And as a former professional wrestler, uh, Glenn Jacobs, you can look him up, and he, he said, you know, it's, 
it's all like professional wrestling. There's a good guy and a bad guy and a, and, and a, a pre-rehearsed script, and it's all for show. So back to the story, like how do they substantiate this? With few sporting events and a captive audience due to the COVID-19 pandemic, a drawn-out nail-biter of an election could appeal to marketers like the finance, technology, retail, social media, and entertainment companies that have bought debate and election night ads. Look there, CJ, on the ball. Already got that video for you. You can see Trump body-slamming CNN. Now, you think, oh, that's bad. No. They, they love the free promotion of that. Like, why would they, why would they do anything to, I mean, it, and you go, you go way back, and, and, and this is an interesting part of the Trump story that is part of the genuine appeal of Trump that, that he did represent a fluke in the system, a, a, a glitch in, the, in their programming, perhaps, just for a second there, because Remember, there was the link, the leak, I think it was from the Podesta emails, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, maybe it was some other leak, where they said they wanted uh, Ben Carson, Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump to be the three standouts in that very large field of Republican candidates in 2016. And they pretty much got what they wanted. They thought that they would be easiest to defeat. Now, in a sense, I think that genuinely did bite them in the ass. I don't think they were expecting to get Trump. But then maybe when Trump won the nomination, remember this week we've covered these stories of Trump's finances finally being exposed, the tax returns coming out, revealing that he's not worth $10 billion, not even a billion dollars, not even a couple hundred million, but might be a few hundred million dollars in debt. And, of course, he's saying, oh, I'm, I'm totally under leverage. Look at the value of my brand. And the thing is, the scary thing is, he might be right at this point. He might have come into this race $400 million in debt and be coming out of it with a brand that's going to sell merchandise, make America great again, Donald Trump worth millions of dollars for years. Who knows? Maybe even billions, the value of that brand itself. Who knows how many stakes and fake university enrollments he's going to be able to sell now as former President Donald Trump for, I don't know, as many years as he has left in that rapidly deteriorating brain of his but this idea that the the, the the media they want it to be they want it to be neck and neck it's not just because they want you to think if you vote third party you're throwing your vote away we know we know things are bad worse than bad we know that if you vote for the duopoly you are throwing your vote away with my apologies to Howard Field uh, so this situation we find ourselves in now shows us just, uh, this other layer of the story of, of the corporate reality of what's driving politics. So with few sporting events and a captive audience due to the COVID-19 pandemic, a drawn out, oh, I'm sorry, uh, at least two networks, Fox, Corps, Fox News and Comcast Corporations, NBC, are expecting or already seeing high demand for the week following the November 3rd election night. Fox News is also offering its major sponsors the option to extend their campaigns if election results are not in after that first week. Determining the next president of the United States could take some time after voting ends on election day 
due to a surge in mail-in ballots and expected legal challenges by the campaigns of Republican President Donald Trump and Democratic challenger Joe Biden. So funny how they have to put that in. Americans glued to news. Skipping ahead here. TV news has already seen a viewership spike this year with NBC, Viacom, CBS, Inc. owned CBS and Disney's ABC experiencing their biggest news audiences in years, siphoning viewers from sports. Not necessarily siphoning. Those viewers just aren't there because there's not a lot going on with sports. Uh, At least not the same. Not the same. In July, August, and September, Fox News was the highest-rated network in all of TV for primetime viewers, according to Nielsen. Now, even this, I, I think these numbers are really overblown. I think a lot more people are watching stuff on the Internet than the old media analysis accounts for. But NBC, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox News sold out their ad inventory for the first debate, according to people familiar with the networks, an estimated 73.1 million viewers tuned into the first debate. Below the record, 84 million four years ago, a decline that may reflect changing viewing habits and an uptick in the number of people who stream content online. There you go. So this thing about Donald Trump, like when when the people who he owed hundreds of millions of dollars to saw him in the primary and saw that he was getting traction, they went, we might just actually not have to take such a huge loss on this one. Can we fuck over the American people and get Donald Trump elected president? We might just be able to. And remember, there are competing factions, legitimately competing factions, within the American Socialist Party. The red team genuinely competes with the blue team, but the powers that be behind don't really care, and they want there to be an honest fight. They want there to be a legitimate competition for who's going to be president, because that's their front man, or or woman, if a woman shall ever successfully stoop so low as to be president of the United States. But they want a contest. They want, it's like they have this reality show competition every four years. Who's going to be the president? Uh, uh, America's got talentless hacks. Uh, But we, we, they want this contest uh, to genuinely let the audience choose among their pre-selected candidates that they're all happy with. And then within that, there is a fight. There is a back and forth. And so I'm tempted to think, well, they let Trump come out because they were desperate to hold people's attention. They were like, well, you know, while people are homesteading and using cryptocurrency and rendering us obsolete in the banking, corporate, military, industrial class, whatever you want to call the super class, the political class, yeah, let's give him Trump. Let's get some attention back. And then they have to ratchet things up. Ah, we got to do Corona. Maybe, maybe this is all. And then, oh well, we got to have Black Lives Matter. Got to be a thing. More important, it's so important. We're going to let people protest without masks on, and then we're going to arrest parents at middle school football games for for not wearing masks and call it trespassing. Yeah, right. I'm getting the feeling that they're just desperate for attention. And I'm grateful to see that their their viewership, this is not insignificant. 
I mean, even this year when people go, this is going to be entertaining shit. Maybe it's enough people who have seen the Trump show already. The Trump show is getting old. If Trump loses, it might just be because someone in the super class said, sorry, Mr. Trump, your ratings just aren't what they used to be. You're fired. <laughs> but 84 million four years ago to 73.1 million this year, that's a good sign. And I want to say that people should be tuning out to the reality of what's going on around us. Of course not. But we should at least recognize the distraction for what it is and not waste too much time on it. Like, I just wasted on that first news story. All right. Vox.com. Interesting follow-up. Why the very richest Americans are refusing to take sides in the presidential race and why that's probably fine with Biden and Trump, too. The nation's very richest people are sitting out the presidential race, not a single one of the ten wealthiest people in the U.S. Almost all of them tech billionaires have shared who they're voting for in November. That, in part, reflects two simultaneous dynamics that undergird Silicon Valley. It's undergirded. Public animosity toward the ultra-wealthy, particularly those leading big tech companies, has been rising in recent years, making it an endorsement for one of these ultra-wealthy people as much of a liability <laughs> as an asset for a candidate. It's kind of nice. We've come to that point. That's good perspective. I mean, that's that's the market speaking. Uh, we have recognized enough that you are a corporate profiteering asshole whose opinion we don't not only disrespect, but we want to vote against you if we can. That's 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 a pretty cool reality that this fact. Okay, it's not a fact. This dynamic here. I guess it would be a fact if someone said if, if someone one of these people said it like that, but. Uh, that this is a reality. Yeah, it's a good sign. Second one, even if candidates wanted their approval, tech billionaires are politically beleaguered these days, especially those who are running companies that must traipse across an antitrust minefield and unproven accusations of political bias, so they aren't exactly rushing to extend themselves even more by taking side on President Donald Trump's re-election. Uh, so it nets out in a convenient way for all sides. The world's richest people aren't offering their endorsements, and candidates aren't asking. Now, the reason I wanted to cover the story is this is this is this was from Drudge Report. This is mainstream news, and what what they're really failing to point out here. I mean, this is almost uh, a distraction because the underlying fact here is that they don't really care. I mean, each one of them probably has significant preferences. But, like, Elon Musk is going to be able to get money out of Trump's government or Biden's government. Um, there, it's sort of like when you're at that level, uh, you're, you're the bank now. Um, and, and you don't really, you know, the, the house always wins. You're the house. So it, it really, there's no incentive. Um you know, we have a bunch of, we do have a few more critical headline news stories. Uh, maybe we'll come back to these um, after we talk to Andy Jacobs. Uh, the, the next one here, I'm just going to tease this ahead. We we are we got the South Park 2 to talk about, but Venezuela's food chain is breaking and millions go hungry. Yeah, we'll come back to this. Let's get Jim up on stage here. What do we got for comments so far on the show today? Any any contest entries? We, did we just say we were going to do the same one as last time? We're going to do the debates, right? So yeah. last time, 
but our, our winners were uh, the people who suggested uh, was it Caitlin Bennett, right? Caitlin Bennett and uh, Shapiro and was Webster. And Ben Shapiro, yeah. Um, I don't know how Webster. Oh, Webster Tarpley. Someone suggested that on Twitter. So that, those are those are sort of eliminated from the running. Um, what do we have, Jen? Uh, well, we've only had one contest entry as far as that goes, and somebody suggested Trump. So we know, you know, that'd be great and all, but that'll never happen. Uh, on another subject, Healthy Disrespect Authority asks, did anyone see the South Park pandemic episode last night? And did you talk about it before he got here? <laughs> you know, I we didn't. Um, I haven't. I, I wanted to. I, well, see, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should just commit to watching it myself tonight. Then comment we'll on talk, it tomorrow. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Like I'm. I'm let me. Uh, let me see. So what, South Park. I'm. I'm on uh, the Pirate Bay right now. Uh, Thepiratebay.org. And uh, yeah, it's already up. See, I said I was gonna wait. Remember, I was gonna wait till I can, I can just rip it. Um, oh wow, yeah. So added today, already got three thousand three hundred seeds on the uh, on the big version. There's there's a smaller version with a thousand seeds. Um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna be able to watch this in uh, in 1080. I don't need the 4K version. Uh, but yeah, even with my with my slow internet connection here, if I leave this running uh, for the rest of the day, uh, I, I should be able to to watch it tonight. So that's the answer for South Park. But yeah, I the uh, the, the headline that I had pulled up from uh, Entertainment Weekly EW dot com was South Park South Park's pandemic special rips Trump Disney cops surprisingly sincere episode. I just want my life back. Um, South Park's one-hour pandemic special episode managed to mock nearly every aspect of our current moment, but reserved its perhaps most scathing rebuke for President Trump. So, yeah, I'll, I'm not even going to – I'm closing that tab. It'll be in the show notes. But, no, I'm closing that tab, and tomorrow uh, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll, do a, we'll do an in-person review. I encourage everybody to watch it, and we'll take callers on this one tomorrow. Yeah, this is more important than the debate. I'm, I'm more inclined to spend time listening to what Matt Parker, uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, I always want to say Trey Stone, like Barry Stone, um, but uh, I, I would, I'd rather listen to what they have to say through the medium of South Park than watch the presidential debate. Mm. I think uh, TJ has something to yeah, say on that. To, to that effect, you know our good friend Miko Hayes over there at Discuss? Of course. Okay, so uh, he put something together. It's a preview of something he worked on, uh, and I think you're going to really appreciate it. So uh, do I got the green light? Sure. Cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's us. Law and order with justice, where people get treated fairly. Okay. And the fact of the matter is, violent crime went down 17%, 15% in our administration. All right. It's gone up on his watch. Went down he, much more. He, he than has, ours. All right, we're, he we're not here. Mr. President, you're going to Mr. President, every record in the Mr. President is going to be very happy because we're now going to talk about law and order. We had trouble with Democratic run cities. That's exactly my question. 
So he <laughs> but he took the whole debate and made it in that format. So if you want to watch the first debate like that, go over to our friend Miko Hayes at Discuss and uh, and check that out. The whole debate is there. You can listen to it or you can watch it like that in that format. So good job, <laughs> Mr. Miko Hayes. Because I, I, I was, he didn't edit the audio or anything for that little clip, right? Oh no, no, no! I, I think he had to put all that together. I'm, I'm pretty sure, but uh, it was well done. I highly recommend that be the way to watch all previous, uh, all future debates. Uh, that so we less sufferable. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I, I think watching it as a clip like that is enough. I still don't want to watch more, but that was hilarious, and I was like, yes. So obvious and so perfect. Thank you for sharing that on the uh, Telegram group earlier, and Migo for making that. All right, do any, any hot comments before we get to our guest? Uh, well, early on, a couple people were uh, commenting. I'm a status that Jim's hair looks extra Fabio today. He must be using I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> <laughs> and then a bunch of people called me Charlie Manson and said, uh, yeah. The, the, the uh, murders. Well, I can't wait until uh, till I have the hair to rival yours, Jim. I'm working on it. I'm digging it so far. I'm 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 looking at the top, going like, is it is it thinning? Like I can't tell. It's weird because I've uh, people have been like I, rem- I This is like my one weird like trauma comment that you remember from like middle school, like or something. I think it was no, it was in the Marines. I was in the Marines. I got, like, a buzz cut or something. I came home, and my stepmom was like, your hair's thinning. What? No, no, it's because I have a buzz cut. And then I was like, it, it's, I've, I've, like, I've always had, like, I, I guess, like, a thicker, dewy, ju- big jufro. We'll see if it grows out. But, like, I, it's weird. I don't know if my hair is either thinning suddenly now because it, it just looks different when it's longer i'm like oh that's what thinning when it's long looks like or if it's like thinning slowly over my lifetime and i just i don't have to worry about it it's going to be nice grown out or if i have to like you know go go get some meds and figure out like how to stop this or if it's just no this is how it's always been and like my hair is like has been thick like in in like I, in certain ways, I guess, but it's like it stands up in a way that it, some ways it looks like it's really thin, and some ways it looks like it's really thick. I I haven't paid much attention to my hair. It's been nice to just have a buzz cut most of my life, I guess. It's definitely easier with the buzz cut. I did I did that most of my life. I, this is a, this hair is probably a year year and a half old. So actually, I was. About your age when I started growing it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see how I look in a year, right? Maybe, maybe I don't know. Is, if someone wants to, like, recommend something, um, I, I'm not going to say who to embarrass him, but I have a relative on, on um, Rogaine because, like, it's, it's funny. Like, in, in my family, we have both the pattern baldness where it creeps back with the widow's peak, and we have the just, like, straight off the top baldness um and I, I i thought rogaine made you dependent like if you use rogaine and then stop you lose all your rogaine or some shit like that like it falls out um the follicles are only there for the rogaine there's some mm-hmm. weird analogy about critters and 
putting out bait, but um, I'll, I'll stop there. But if someone has some, like, just general, like, healthy recommendation to, like, make your hair thicker as you're, um, you know, you know, as you're, <laughs> as I'm growing it out, let me know. I'm, I'm all ears. If someone in the car, you could win the contest today. <laughs> if nobody suggests a better d- person for me to debate. And I'll, so uh, CJ says the guest will be joining soon. So CJ, I'm watching, um, I'm watching that. Um, Rogan gives you ED, erectile dysfunction. Uh, yeah, well, um, that would that would probably be uh, would wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad thing for me. Uh, I, I have. Well, I'll just I'll stop. You're just inviting me to talk about my penis, aren't you? I won't take that. Um, I won't take that dangling, drooping bait. Yeah, wiggle it in front of my face, and I will. I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll. I'll. I'm not talking about my penis anymore. I made it worse, didn't I? Shit. All right, so CJ, I'm watching the uh, Telegram chat. We'll bullshit about our hair until you tell us that the guest is live. Uh, CJ wrote just uh, two minutes ago that the guest is joining soon. Um, you know, I, I, I should point out one of the links that I, I, I put up today, I need to uh, I need to table to, to read it to get into it more. Um, the, the, the Atlantic has this story. Um, I don't know, CJ, if you're paying attention to me instead of the guest, um, you probably should be paying attention to the guest. But um, the, the story from the Atlantic, the picture at the top is my, my old friend, sort of friend, Stuart Rhodes. And, uh, yeah, this I, I, it's, a, it's a long story, and it's about the, uh, the, the Proud Boys. But this is Stuart Rhodes. Um, I knew him before he lost his eye. I forget how he lost his eye. So, like, I need I need to figure out all that before I cover this story. But I guess uh, if we're still waiting for our guest, let's get into the uh, the Wall Street Journal story. Let's do this. Well, real, real quick before we do that. I, oh, okay. Real quick, there was only one comment about, regarding your hair uh, from Mike Eureko. Mind over matter, Kokesh. Don't let your optimism and faith wane, and your hair will remain full. Uh, I've seen some really optimistic, positive, perfectly centered bald dudes. So no, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that's not the who's. Co- so you're, oh yeah, the Buddha, right? Yeah. No. Your response to that comment is pure negativity. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> I gotta be yeah, you know that. Visualization, visualization is a powerful thing, my friend. Well, I'm I'm visualizing myself <laughs> with your hair. I hope the audience can appreciate that. All right. So let's uh, let's do one story while we're waiting for uh for Andy here. From the Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com, Venezuela's food chain is breaking and millions go hungry. A report found that 13% of children under five are stunted. Oil-rich nation is on the edge of an irreversible catastrophe. Anna Nunez, a 62-year-old retired municipal worker in western Venezuela, says her meals often consist of just a few corn flour pancakes known as arepas. Even when she has money to buy groceries in the city of Maracaibo's teeming flea market, she said that instead of quality food, they sell garbage like animal hides and rotten cheese. Now, 
you know, a lot of these mainstream media stories begin with a kind of sensationalist cherry picking of a story. But to see this failure on the larger scale, there is an undeniable failure here. And early on in the coronavirus pandemic here in the United States, we brought you stories of uh, hundreds of tons, thousands of tons of produce rotting on the side of the road because the supply chains were failing. Truckers weren't going out. Stores weren't open. And here in the good old U.S. of A., citizens of the empire, we will be protected from starving. They're, they're just, they're not going to let that happen. We're going to have food lines. We're going to have uh, food pantries uh, overburdened. We're going to have uh, tapping of, uh, of stores and, and, and emergency supplies. But I, I don't think the powers that be would let a population as armed as ours starve. But in Venezuela, not only do we see the consequences of a different vicious kind of socialism, but we see the fragility of it in a crisis like this. And while I will make the case until we admit it as a country that America is a fundamentally socialist nation as well, I'm certainly happy to admit that Venezuela's socialism is of a much more destructive scale and nature in the nationalization of industry. A widespread scarcity of gasoline is the latest blow to domestic food production in Venezuela, preventing goods from getting to market and farmers from filling up their tractors. Food production in this oil-rich nation, led by its socialist president, Nicolas Maduro, has already been hobbled by shortages of seeds and agrochemicals, price controls that made raising crops unprofitable and government seizures of farms and food processing plants. So they were... uh, a few more down, a few more miles down the road to serfdom towards socialism than the United States when this crisis hit, and we're a lot more vulnerable. However, we can learn from this because we see how this serves to understand how, in the United States, we have been vulnerable to the shutdowns and lockdowns and all the ways that we have been pushed to certain breaking points. Venezuelans aren't the only ones going hungry across Latin America. The economic blow caused by the COVID-19 pandemic has thrown millions out of work and into poverty. From Mexico City to Santiago, people are skipping meals, lining up at soup kitchens, and begging, United Nations agencies say. But conditions in Venezuela, which even before the pandemic was suffering the worst economic meltdown in its history, are by far the most dire. So, uh... Skipping ahead, uh, even when supermarket shelves are stocked, hyperinflation, they hit 90, excuse me, it's a big number to say, 9,500% last year, and high unemployment mean that millions of Venezuelan families can't afford enough to eat. So, yeah, they, remember, this is a country that was already in the middle of a currency crisis. And, again, I, I, I hate to make this, like, a merocentric while we're looking around the rest of the world and seeing, like, how worse people are suffering here. Uh, than, than here, but like, let's learn from this. See, like, what, what led them to this currency crisis? Oh, it's, it's what the American federal government is doing now. And we've seen a lot more dollar collapse stories lately, and, and I'm start, I'm, I'm 
I'm starting to see the, the, the substance in them that, that was lacking in, in prior decades, perhaps. So if it gets to that point in the United States, is the American federal government going to be able to bail out the Federal Reserve System with its muscle again? I don't know. The UN report said that the monthly minimum wage of just a few dollars buys less than 5% of required basic foodstuffs for the average family. We've been, uh, as Carlos Alonso, 35-year-old farm worker, says that we've been saved by the avocados and bananas growing near our house. Now, that is, that is encouraging, isn't it? I mean, to end this story on a positive note, as we see in the United States, more and more people inclined to live off-grid. To produce your own food. It's not that hard. Get that independence. Put in that effort. And if this happens again, it's not going to happen. Uh, but there's there's one more uh, quote I, I got to share here from the end of the story. Uh, one, one more paragraph. Others rely on remittances from relatives living abroad, but these cash transfers have been cut in half amid COVID-19 quarantines and economic shutdowns, said Susan Rafali, uh, food security consultant in Venezuela. She said, Mr. Maduro is reluctant to acknowledge the scope of the crisis or to allow the World Food Program or and other international aid groups to distribute the massive quantities of food Venezuela needs. As she said, this is not yet a famine, but we are in a food emergency. The food supply system has totally broken down. So, Please keep the people who are suffering in ways that in the United States as protected citizens of the empire we can't even imagine yet in your uh, in your thoughts and your prayers. And remember that uh, we need to stay grateful for how good we have it if we can still afford to eat. All right, our guest is ready. Let's get him on here. Um, so guest, okay, guest was having technical issues. Now guest is ready. All right, let's get uh, Andy Jacobs on screen here. Ladies and gentlemen, join us today, my good friend Andy Jacobs. I've known for several years, I've seen him around the scene in a lot of libertarian state conventions and a few other uh, get-togethers of a freedom nature. And he's, he's someone who, as I said earlier, really doesn't get to hold the mic as much as his wisdom deserves. And, you know, today we're bringing him on to focus on uh, his area of expertise, which is especially relevant right now in, uh, in, in this coronavirus crisis, but something that is generally undercovered in libertarian activism, as there are so many libertarian candidates who simply want to get on the ballot to, to give voters the opportunity to put a check next to an L to get on that platform and be able to say, you know, fuck this whole system. You're going to tax me to make this relevant? Then I'm going to stand up here as a candidate, and I'm going to tell people how it is. And they run into all of these roadblocks and filing fees and sometimes impossible petition uh, requirements for signatures. And so Andy Jacobs has been doing this with the Libertarian Party for a long time. He's a ballot actor. Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yes, we had a little lost uh, static on the line, but you're coming. I'm sorry. Can you hear me? I can. You're, can you hear me? All right. Can, can, 
No. All right. CJ, get him back, and uh, I'll just finish this intro. We'll bring him on when he's ready, hopefully by the end of this, because I got a lot of nice things to say about Andy. And uh, as, as, as he says, he has uh, personally gathered over 90,000 petition signatures for libertarian candidates and tens of thousands of petition signatures for pro-liberty initiatives, referendums, and recalls. Um, and he travels all over the country. He vagabonds in order to do this job. Uh, sometimes as a freelancer, as he says, he's worked on ballot access drives in 35 different states. He's worked on the Ron Paul for president, uh, uh, president campaign in 2008 and 2012 and was the ballot access coordinator for Ron Paul's campaign in 2012. He's got a, a YouTube channel, Libertarian Revolution, and even just recently has run into trouble with, uh, with law enforcement gathering signatures. So we're going to hear that story from him today. Uh, do we have our, our technical issues resolved here? CJ. Can you hear me? No. All right. Maybe. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? I can. Yes. I hear you. Awesome. All right. right. So you might have missed some of the wonderful things that I said about you, but we're grateful to have you with you, Andy. And I I really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Did we just lose him? Uh, You know, um, yeah. Um, Hmm. Oh, geez. Sorry about this. My computer, I could, okay, my, I'm having some computer issues. I'm using my cell phone. Uh, I'm in an area where the reception isn't that good. Yeah. Uh, let me drive a little bit. And I'll maybe in Hey, Andy, it's okay. If Hey, I, you know what? I'd rather reschedule if you're okay with it because I do want to give you the time and take a full hour. I think our audience is pretty excited after that intro to hear what you have okay. to say. I, I hate Can to you kind hear of me? awkwardly. But no, your your audio is kind of in and out. You said you're going to drive somewhere. Yeah, but let's make schedule. No, nah, so your audio is still in and out. Um, hey, no, no sweat, man. It's uh, not a big deal. I mean, unless uh, you know, unless I hear otherwise from our producers on the chat, I'm. Gonna, I, I think we should reschedule. I really want to make sure that, uh, that that we give Andy a full hour here. And uh, yeah, see, this is uh, okay. What did what did CJ say here? Um, yeah, reschedule. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and reschedule. We have plenty of news to cover here today. And, um, you know, all right, we covered Venezuela. Um, but, yeah, Andy, Andy's going to be – Andy's a fun dude to talk to. He's going to be a really good guest. I, I would hate to, uh, you know, give him a subpar interview or, or be dealing with reception and, and logistics challenges. Uh, but yeah, one of the stories that we didn't get to, we're gonna we're gonna cover about Verizon having problems. I don't know who this carrier is. Obviously, I'm not uh, no, not presuming, but I mean, food shortages. And and by the way, we did have the story about Donald Trump's notes and in, in food boxes. Let's just get into all of this. Our next story from the AFP via Yahoo.com: Secretive big data firm Palantir makes low-key stocks debut. Right. Data analytics firm Palantir, which has drawn fire over its law enforcement and national security work, made a low-key debut Wednesday on Wall Street at a hefty valuation of more than $20 billion. Palantir, whose name comes from the mystical, all-powerful scene stone in Lord of the Rings, opted for a direct listing, which raises no new cash but allows its shares to be traded publicly. The debut came without fanfare as the trade opened with no splashy bell ringing, even for Palantir using the symbol PLTR at the New York Stock Exchange. The shares 
opened in the early afternoon at $10, representing a market value of some $21.7 billion, close to its valuation by private investors after some swings higher. Palantir ended at $9.50, making its value slightly above $20 billion. So it lost money in this deal. Not typically how you do an IPO, but this is, like they're saying, low-key, but getting out to be able to trade their stocks publicly means that this business and what this represents is that it is of, we have entered the world of the intersection of surveillance and information processing and corporatism where there can be a single company serving this function worth $20 billion. And that's the kind of money that moves around this entity. Now, who are they tracking Bin Laden going back? Founded in 2003 in response to the September 11 attacks, Palantir got initial funding from a CIA venture capital unit. Its predictive analytics reportedly helped the U.S. military locate Osama bin Laden and track weapons movements in the Middle East. Its platform has also been used in the controversial practice of predictive policing to help law enforcement detect medical insurance fraud and fight the coronavirus pandemic. Now, should you be scared? While Palantir's data practices and algorithms are secret, the company claims it follows a roadmap which is, if anything, more ethical than its tech sector rivals. Yeah. Okay. Now, the thing about predictive policing, thanks to our producer, CJ, we covered this story last week where the uh, county sheriffs in Florida were using, in in one county, uh, predictive uh, crime analysis that led them to harass people and arrest them for more victimless crimes. Now, how do I square this being a tech optimist? Like, I, I genuinely like that, that we can use this technology to predict behavior and better meet people's needs. The problem is we have accepted this violent concept of government as a way of meeting people's needs, and really it's meeting the needs of its corporate sponsors, like Palantir. I mean, how much you want to bet you see some political connections with this? I mean, it, it, is it an, it's, if it's not enough for you to see that it was uh, originally funded from a CIA venture capital unit, that some of that money is going to go back into American politics. And you go, well, Adam, you said it doesn't matter. Who cares? Red team, blue team, right? Yeah, okay. But there's a yellow team going, why does the CIA have a venture capital unit? Maybe it shouldn't exist. You think a company worth $20 billion can't invest a little bit to, to, to render this minor threat irrelevant? There's so many forces lined up against the Libertarian Party. It's almost a wonder that, that we just exist as much as we do. There's so many major corporate interests like this tied into the federal government, tied into to, to major government funding, that Libertarians would all just go, like, no, get rid of it. Even Joe Jorgensen, no, just gone, gone. And they, 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 they will do whatever it takes to defend this. And now they have this technology. And, I, I, again, I, you go, how do you fight this? Right? This is, um, I mean, this is, this is really scary. Uh, back to the story. One source of controversy for Palantir's co-founder and large shareholder, Peter Thiel, an early Facebook investor and one of the rare tech executives, who backed Donald Trump's campaign in 2016. <laughs> so it kind of already is looping back. Uh, 
Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm predicting you're going to see this in a bigger way. Uh, Chief, Chief Executive Alex Karp, a self-described socialist, has brushed aside criticism of the company saying technology firms should not be in charge of public policy. <sighs> now, the, the, at this level, we're just watching people like competing fraudsters see who can trick each other out of more money. So this listing on the New York Stock Exchange will lead to fresh scrutiny for Palantir, which posted a loss of $580 million last year on revenue of $743 million. That's a lot of money. And a loss of $580 million. It's not like, whoops, the market for our services went away. It's like, this, is, this is engineered. Independent technology uh, analyst Richard Windsor says the company will have, quote, a voting structure that overwhelming, overwhelmingly favors its founders, ensuring that public investors are at great risk of paying the economic price of bad decisions over which they have no say. Yep, Palantir's Class B shares held by founders will have 10 votes to 1 for the Class A stock, along with a new category with variable voting power. So one, what this means is that if you buy stock in this company now, and there are a lot, like, I, I mean, as an objective investor, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you if you look at this and go, yeah, yeah, these people are probably going to make more money. This company's value is probably going to go up. And you, you, you buy one of their shares at, at ten fifty, and, and you lose a dollar per share on the first day of trading. What you've done is you've, you've basically bought off shareholders who want to cash out and, and gotten a claim to the company that you have no control over as a result. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point they just said, oh, yeah, yeah fuck this company. Its brand is tarnished. Let's just uh, drive the stock down to zero. And you're going to be holding the bag. Uh, and, and, and a lot of sucker Main Street investors in Wall Street are going to be the losers, not just the American people as a whole, uh, as a result of this company. Uh, so the quote here is, um, this result is that until all the founders have died, the remaining founders will have complete control of this company and other shareholders will have none. Now, one more institution in the corporate class of multi-billion dollar corporations tied to government and the security state has arrived. Um, let's see. So CJ sent another story here. Uh, see, the CIA's venture capital firm, like its sponsor, operates in the shadows. Oh, there's – oh, my gosh. CJ, hot on the follow-up stories today. Yeah, this is something else. NQTEL, a nonprofit venture capital firm that invests tax – wow, wait a second. All right, so to the story here. Portera Systems, Inc., a California startup focused on virtual reality, was in need of money, and its products didn't have much commercial appeal. Then funds came in from a source based far from Silicon Valley, InQtel, a venture capital firm in Virginia funded by the CIA. One catalyst for the 2007 infusion, according to former Portera executive and other familiar with it, others familiar with it was a recommendation by a man who sat on the board of the venture capital firm and also on the board of Portera. Hopefully this uh, Palantir debut turns into, uh, you know, 
another level of awakening for the American public about how much money is moved around tech by shady people around the CIA. I'm I, I'm uh, I'm not surprised to see this, but it's it is pretty cool to see it to come coming to light like this. Our next story comes from the Chicago Tribune via MSN.com. I told you we were going to see more glitches in the matrix with food shortages and food banks overwhelmed. But here's a weird insertion into this. Political propaganda or essential public health messages? Government-sponsored food boxes include a letter from Trump. Hey, you know how you're starving? That's not my fault. <sighs> Propaganda tastes good, don't it? Chicago food pantries for months have relied on a government-sponsored food box program to serve a spike in needy families during the pandemic, but the latest batch of boxes includes an item some find unpalatable as the electioneers, a letter signed by President Donald Trump. The letter, printed both in English and Spanish on White House letterhead, highlights the Farmers to Families Food Box Program and includes general safety information for preventing COVID-19 transmission. It does not mention the November 3 election, but some local food pantries say it's inappropriate and plan to remove the letter before distributing the boxes to families. Dr. Evelyn Figueroa, Executive Director of the Pilsen Food Pantry, which plans to remove the letter from 200 boxes on Wednesday, says it is quite unethical and a misuse of government funds. I find it highly offensive that we have a letter in here that doesn't add any value, and to me it seems very self-promoting. Trump? Self-promoting? You don't say. In the letter, Trump says, Safeguarding the health and well-being of our citizens is one of my highest priorities. And I prioritize sending nutritious food from our farmers to families in need throughout America. Conveniently leaving out the point about uh, it was my national declaration of a state of emergency that led you to be in need in the first place. Figueroa worries, including the letter in the box, can be construed as a political endorsement, which tax exempt nonprofits are not allowed to make. The pantry has been distributing flyers, encouraging people to vote and complete the census, as well as general public health advice to prevent the spread of the coronavirus for those who haven't been connected to elected officials, she said. So the letter this week, started, which, which this week started appearing uh, in food boxes being distributed locally, is disappointing after the food box program has proved enormously helpful during the pandemic, especially in the early months when empty grocery store shelves led to a 20% drop in food donations. Similar concerns arose when Trump's name was added to government stimulus checks sent out in April to allay the economic blow from the pandemic. The $4 billion food box program funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture gives contracts to distributors offering uh, distributors suffering from the closure of restaurants and hospitality businesses to pr- purchase fresh food from farmers. The distributors package the food into family-sized boxes and distribute them to food pantries and other organizations helping to feed people during the pandemic. Nearly 100 million boxes have been sent since the program launched in May, according to the USDA. Now, even, again, I just, I, I gotta, like, challenge my own premises here. Like, even if the virus is everything that they said it was, how can you pretend that it's not 
a massive government failure that we basically haven't been able to feed ourselves as a result of their policy. I don't think there's any way around it. I, and and I, I hope that, uh, that, that people are paying enough attention to just not fall for this next round of bullshit. You know, part of what we learned or in one of the conclusions that you have to come to again about, you know, Donald Trump's talent as a con man is primarily in promoting his own brand. So that he's inserted himself and, you know, the, the people got checks with his signature on it. I mean, yeah, you, you know, you can put letters in food boxes. Okay, yeah, you're the, you're the president. It's a government program. You, you want to put your stamp on it? You want, you want, to, you want Trump on, on everything? Oh, yeah, okay. This is what you get for voting for Trump. So, um, now, in, in some of these cases, they didn't have the opportunity, they didn't even have the chance to remove the letters from the boxes. And one of the, the women involved in a program um, that where they weren't able to said, I imagine that many people that take the time to read the letter will be angry and confused. Nelson said, but others don't think food box recipients will pay the letter any mind. At the Chosen Tabernacle Church in Bronzeville, which receives 150 food boxes a week to distribute to neighborhood families, the Reverend Sandy Gillespie said she initially was appalled to learn of the letter, which she called a shameless plug. But her group will not be removing the letters from the boxes before its Thursday distribution because it is too labor-intensive and not worth the effort, she said. The church, which has been engaged in get-out-the-vote efforts, not only for the federal but also local and state elections, does not serve a community that would likely be swayed by preserved overtures by Trump, Gillespie said. Now, why do they do this? And why does Trump do this? Why, why do they put, send out letters like this in general? Like, yeah, because it works. And, you know, our, our, a community that might not be swayed by perceived overtures from Trump, you would be surprised how shallow some voters are as to, to just go, oh, that was the food box that came from Trump, right? Because it had a letter signed by Trump in it. That came from Trump. It happens because it, it, it works. I do, th and, and you know, strategically, this might be like around the margins that they would be able to, uh, you know, flip certain districts, flip a few electoral college votes, perhaps. And this might be, you know, Trump's better strategy. Sad thing is, as part of this is the, uh, or is this is part of the general desperate attempt for attention then you're going to see uh, them get more desperate because they get less effective. Uh, you, you have to send out more content if it has less of an impact. And, uh, yeah, putting, putting letters in food boxes is kind of desperate. All right. Um, do, we want, do we want to go to the guests now? I mean, I really want to give Andy the full hour, but if he wants to come on and just do 20 minutes, we can do 20 minutes. Well, we could – yeah, sorry, I had some technical issues, and I had to go onto my cell phone, and then I had bad reception, so I had to drive to an area with better reception. So I'm in an area with better reception now, uh, but if you want to postpone it, you know, maybe yeah, that would be better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's do this. Let's do this again, whatever our next opening is for the show. And uh, uh, I really do – I want to give you the full hour. And, and, and I appreciate I that. I don't think 
to the subject. Yeah, do you want to do you want to do you want to go tomorrow or? Um, I okay. think I think we have a guest scheduled. Oh no, you know what? Tomorrow we don't have a guest. Yeah, let's just do tomorrow. So tomorrow, we're second half of the show, and uh, right. we'll still take we'll take callers in the first half. But yeah, so same time tomorrow. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry about that. I had no, no idea these reception issues were going to happen, and uh, tomorrow I'll just drive to a place and just use the phone. And I'll I'll know to drive somewhere because the reception around where I'm staying isn't that good. So all right, no see you no. and now our audience has this to look forward to because we really are going to do this this uh, this interview justice and and uh, talk about the the ballot access issues that Andy has been involved with and is is quite experienced in. So next, uh, our next story comes from nextgov.com. NextGov, federal government to conclude fiscal 2020 with record spending. Even without data from the month of September, the Treasury Department reports total federal spending exceeded $6 trillion for the first time. Now, I'm wondering about this. Yeah, yeah, look into those eyes. Because I thought it was $3 trillion and $3 trillion and then $3 trillion, But I think that's... You know, there's some accounting tricks in there. And a lot of the uh, money that was allocated as emergency coronavirus spending was allocated as loans, forgivable loans, to the tune of billions of dollars to our friends in corporate America. And until those loans somehow expire, I don't know how they're going to, I mean, it's there's so much sleight of hand, but even with the sleight of hand, you have these undeniable numbers. So the federal government's fiscal 2020 year ends today at midnight. This was uh, yesterday, September 30. And federal spending has eclipsed $6 trillion for the first time ever, and that's without data from September, blah, blah, blah. According to data from the Treasury Department, total government spending in fiscal 2020 reached $6.1 trillion by August 31st. The 2020 budget deficit now stands at $3 trillion through August. Also a first meeting, the government has spent $3 trillion more than what it has taken in this year following 11 consecutive months of deficit spending compounded by the coronavirus pandemic. The current budget deficit is nearly twice as large as the previous highest deficit run in fiscal 2009 amid a national recession. So I'm wondering if this even mentions um, uh, money coming from the CARES Act. Yeah, okay, so here it is, David Barteau. So this is this is a limited number. Um, David Barteau, President and CEO of the Professional Services Council for the Next Gov Contract. Spending estimates are difficult to forecast because spending data can lag up to three months for the Defense Department. You know, they, they, they need that time to hide trillions of dollars. It has been made more difficult in fiscal 2020 due to money coming from the $2 trillion CARES Act. However, Barteau said it is clear the government is choosing Dispense available contracting dollars on products over services. Ships and planes are driving an increase in spending at the Defense Department, but there's a lot of uncertainty. When I hear that, I think, you know, all right, they're spending money on ships and planes. Like, yeah. All right. All right. Are we going to be able to repurpose them somehow, or are we just pissing this money into the desert? As we would say in Iraq, pissing this money into the sand. But yeah, yeah, that's that's basically what it is. Uh, some hopefully this isn't you know a total loss at some point. I mean, what 
America is suffering as it is right now, and the Defense Department is ordering planes and boats. And they're not they're not starting businesses. They're not creating value. They're just destroying value. Well, maybe just distorting it or diverting it in this case, but perhaps diverting it to somewhere totally useless. All right. Follow-up story from APNews.com next. Man charged in shooting of two L.A. County deputies. And uh, we brought you this story when it first happened, and at the time didn't know very much about it. Hopefully now we can get a more complete picture. Prosecutors charged, I'm not saying that you're going to get a complete picture from the government narrative, don't get me wrong. Prosecutors charged a 36-year-old man Wednesday with a brazen ambush of two L.A. County Sheriff's deputies earlier this month in apparently unprovoked shooting as they sat in a squad car outside a rail station. The deputies suffered head wounds in the September 12 attack and have since been released from their hospital. Sheriff Alex Villanueva said the recoveries will be a long process and include further reconstructive surgery. The suspect, Deontay Lee Murray, pleaded not guilty to attempted murder and other charges Wednesday during his arraignment. He faces life in state prison if he is convicted. Now, if you watch anything or, or study false conviction rates, it really is sad to understand that in a lot of investigations like this, they just uh, they look for any thread of, of evidence scientific or not, and, you know, try to pin crimes on someone just to be able to say they've got someone and the case is resolved, and especially in a case where cops are attacked. And and this is just kind of a nature or an element of human nature. Like, if you're attacked and you want to eliminate a threat, you're not going to be slowed down by due process. And... In this system, it allows for a lot of false convictions. But let's see. Let's look at this case. Murray's attorney, Jack Keenan, declined to comment that he's not yet seen prosecutors' evidence. Oh, surprising, right? Murray's being held in jail on a $6.15 million bail and due back in court in November. November! This dude's going to do a month in jail with no evidence presented. I mean, right away, the failures of the system are obvious. The Sheriff's Department arrested Murray two weeks ago in connection with a separate carjacking. But officials at the time said it was not related to the ambush case. Murray has a criminal history, including convictions for sales and possession of narcotics, firearm possession, receiving stolen property, burglary, and terrorist threats. Authorities said Wednesday's criminal complaint includes allegations that he associates with gangs. And so this is how they get someone, too. If you want a scapegoat, pick someone who's unpopular. Pick someone who's got a bad reputation, according to the government. Now, Convictions for sales and possession of narcotics, firearm possession, victimless crimes. Receiving stolen property, in and of itself, victimless crime. Now, burglary and terrorist threats, those are crimes I would go like, that might speak to his character, if I didn't know that they were so misapplied by police, that terror, burglary and terrorist threat could have been him, you know, and I, I don't know. But you can get charged with a terrorist threat for, you know, sneezing at a cop the wrong way now. Um, so I guess sneezing at a cop in the age of coronavirus is a different thing. But looking at a cop, funny, right? Investigators on Wednesday did not provide a specific motive for the attack other than the fact that he obviously hates policemen and wants them dead, said Captain Kent Wagner, the head of the Sheriff's Homicide Bureau. And, and this, there's this whole other paint yourself as the victim as a cop 
practice in America, the, this whole shtick. Like, well, we have to go out and worry about cases like you. Every time you pull someone over, they might just shoot you through the car door. You know, well, stop pulling people over for bullshit, and that's not going to happen as much. Well, I don't know if I'm arresting someone for drugs. If he's got it, well, stop arresting people for victimless crimes. You're the terrorist. You're the criminal when you do that. And and that's what American policing has become. The, in the shooting, which the sheriff said depicted the worst of humanity, surveillance videos was a person walking toward the patrol car, which is parked in a metro rail station in the city of Compton, firing a handgun through the passenger side window. Now, you know, I, I got criticized years ago when there was the, the, the police shooting in Las Vegas. Uh, and it turned out that the cops involved were managing um, informants. And you, you know what that relationship is? I mean, I've never been an informant. I've, I've, I've never even been recruited, at least not directly, I don't think, to be an informant. I said, you know, Adam, give us information on these people and we will, we'll, we'll let you go or we'll give you favors or whatever. But what if I don't do exactly what you say? What, and, and this is, this, this, this is one part of, of cop dramas on TV that they don't show often enough because what happens is someone gets busted for marijuana possession. Wear a wire, take us to your dealer, and you won't get prosecuted. Do what I say or I'm going to lock you in jail. Do my job for me or I'm threatening you with imprisonment. A lot of those threats escalate. A lot of those cops end up being corrupt on drugs, running drugs, selling drugs themselves. So sometimes shooting a cop, you know, in a situation like that, I made the case in the Vegas shootings that, like, it might be justified. And and, and I I don't want to say it's ethically justified under, uh, under libertarian ethics because it's not. But under statist ethics, if, if, if a cop is threatening your family and saying, essentially, I'm going to set your kid up with, or I'm going to set your husband up with kitty porn if you don't fuck me. You know, if you're getting a threat like that and you can't report that to the police or you've tried to report that to police or you're in some situation where they've protected themselves and the only thing you can do to fight back is murder that cop. I mean, I hate, I would say it's not justified ethically and you should seek other means, but it's understandable, right? And, and cops are constantly threatening people with death. Every time you get pulled over, red, white, and blue means freedom until it's flashing in your rearview mirror. That That is accompanied with a threat of death. You will do what I say or we will kill you. I'm, and I'm not exaggerating. Let me just walk you through this. Flashing lights behind you. You do what they say. You pull over. If you don't, they will chase you down. They will stop you. If you resist being brought into custody at that point, they will use violence against you. If you're white and rich and you're lucky, maybe they'll just rough you up and tase you and pepper spray you. If you're not and you're black, you probably get shot in that situation. And again, if you, it doesn't matter how rich and white you are, even if you're cheesecake like Mitt Romney, man, it doesn't matter. At some point, if you resist, violence will be used against you. So, the worst of humanity in some ways, fighting back against this authority that has become tyrannical and violent and inhumane might actually represent the best of humanity, once again revealing how backwards police are and how tempted they are to lie.
The deputies, a 31-year-old woman and 24-year-old man who had graduated together from the Sheriff's Academy 14 months ago, radioed for help despite their wounds. The suspect fled in a black Mercedes-Benz sedan. Investigators discovered that type of vehicle had been stolen September 1 in a carjacking where the driver was shot. Photographs of the carjacking suspect seemed to match images from the ambush. Wagner said, strengthening a connection between the two cases. On September 15, investigators spotted the suspect driving another vehicle and tried to stop him. The suspect threw a gun out of the car during a pursuit before abandoning the vehicle in the city of Linwood. The suspect ran off and was ultimately captured. After nearly nine hours standoff with police, the black Mercedes was found nearby. Uh, skipping ahead here, uh, I mean, well, after the ambush, a handful of protesters gathered outside of the hospital. The deputies were, create, uh, were treated and tried to block the emergency room entrance. Videos from the scene recorded protesters shouting expletives at police and at least one yelling, I hope they die. Now, again, I'm not justifying this. I don't think that this violence is is the answer. I don't think shooting cops is, you know, you know unless unless they really are a threat to you personally or, or someone you know, and there's no other way to address this. But, you know, the ethical answer and the more effective answer has been given to us by Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, so... Wednesday's announcement of the arrest and the shooting of the deputies followed a separate seemingly unprovoked assault on another law enforcement officer in Southern California in L.A. police officer was attacked Saturday inside the Harbor Community Police Station in San Pedro. Assailant was reported on surveillance videos. He knocked the officer to the ground inside the station, pistol whipped him with his own gun, and pointed it at his chest. The officer was recovering from his injury. Wow. Now, you think about this. The crowd is chanting, I hope they die. How bad is it for cops when the public is taking the side of the people who are shooting you? I hope this is a wake-up call to police. After seeing some of the other recent cases, like what they did in not charging Breonna Taylor shooters and, and covering up other cases still, they're going to get away with whatever we let them get away with. Shooting a couple of officers may actually make it worse. Uh, even when it is justified. Um, and I'm not afraid to ask the question, when is it okay to shoot a police officer? No different from any other human being. That's the answer. When is it okay to shoot another human being? Only when you have no better nonviolent answer to the situation and they are making themselves an immediate threat to life and limb of another human being. Other than that, no. This is the non-aggression principle. Uh, but when police are using violence unjustifiably, like would it have been justified to shoot Chauvin when he was kneeling on George Floyd's neck. I'd like to think that you could have figured out a way to do that without shooting or killing Chauvin. I mean, maybe you could shoot him enough that it would just get him off his off his neck, right? You know, minimal use of force. But yeah, if a cop is killing someone in front of you, you are absolutely justified in using force to defend that person or to defend yourself. All right, next, another glitch in the matrix from thehill.com. Is the internet falling apart? The president's two August executive orders banning the mobile app TikTok and the mobile app WeChat, along with the State Department's major foreign policy initiative for a clean Internet within the United States, are only the most recent signs that the once open global Internet is slowly being replaced by 200 nationally controlled separate Internet. And while these separate American, Chinese, Russian, Australian, European, British, and other Internets may decide to have some things in common with each other, the laws of political gravity will slowly pull them further apart as interest groups in each country lobby for their own concerns within their own country. Moreover, 
we will probably see the emergence of a global alternate internet before long. Some of this nationalistic disintegration of the internet has been foreseen as the 1990s open slash global internet gradually became a principal domain of war, news, espionage, politics, propaganda, banking, commerce, entertainment, education since around 2005. The process of creating hundreds of individual national internets has been slow because the global internet, the network of networks, was never designed to recognize national borders and because the United States had been a forceful opponent of a fragmented set of national internets. Both of these conditions have changed, and they are changing rapidly. So I just cover this quickly to point out something that we should all be paying attention to as uh, fighting for freedom of information on the Internet is one of the critical battlegrounds for freedom. Now, I'm not too worried about this because I think before we get – I mean, we already have the Great Firewall of China. We already have the, the government basically snooping on everything on the Internet. Um, we already have uh, troll farms manipulating social media, being manipulated by corporations and political campaigns to buy your attention and manipulate your behavior, blah, blah, blah. Like, there's, there's, I just, I could keep going. Um, I, I'm not too worried about this. The reason I'm not following it super closely, again, if someone in the producer's club wants me to get into a, a specific story, I'm, I'm happy to get into this more. But I think that this is going to be leapfrogged by two technologies that are at some point going to just make government attempts to control the internet irrelevant. Um, although, you know, a big a thing we got, we got to get out of the way, the uh, corporatist control of the signal, Verizon, um, all the major telecom providers, um, you know, making sure that, that they don't have the power to control the data because if they do, government will have a back door or if they can't control your device, but one of the ways we beat that is with mesh networking. And, and at some point, I don't think they can suppress the technology's ability to just, just communicate directly. And instead of, you know, what we have now of each device, you know, connecting essentially to some central hub, you have a mesh network of devices. I mean, the term describes the concept very directly, very simply and straightforward. That's it. Um, and then the other one being, uh, blockchain and encryption and decentralization of, of so many online services. I think what that's going to lead to is, uh, you know, something um, entirely different than what we have today. Okay, just checking up on notes in the Producers Club. Next story, and, and I, I should have mentioned this when we were talking to Dean McRae yesterday about what's going on in Australia. By the way, if you didn't catch yesterday's episode, one of, one of our best interviews ever. I think that was a lot of fun. We played the which is more socialist, Australia or America game? Australia barely won, but then in the bonus round, got a lot more points for gun confiscation. So um, there you go. Hey, there it is on screen right there, me and Dean McRae. Check it out. We had a lot of fun with that. But there's a, this article, the next one is from, excuse me, abc.net.au, ABC Rural. Excuse me. Service NSW tells farmers to put sheep on planes to get around border restrictions. Yeah, now first, you, you have to go with who is Service NSW. That's that's New South Wales, I believe. Um, and this is from a, a government agent uh, agency. Restriction, so the, the key points here are restrictions on the New South Wales slash Victoria border have left farmers and agricultural workers unable to do their jobs. 
New South Wales announced this week permits for farmers and agricultural workers within 100 kilometers of the border. There are calls for federal government intervention to grant concessions to those outside of that zone. So what they were telling people, so this is this is a worthy story to tell here. Sheep grazier, good Aussie term there, not shepherd, sheep grazier, as in a, a grazer of sheep. Chris Taylor said he has been driven to the brink of despair as he tried to get hay from his western Victorian property to a southern New South Wales farm to feed sheep. He was told by service NSW recently that he would have to fly it to Sydney before spending two weeks in quarantine. I thought she was joking for starters. He said, fly it and then sit it in Sydney for 14 days and then transport it to Houston to feed my sheep. So 14 days later, my sheep would get a feed and the hay would have a joy flight and sit in quarantine. Mr. Taylor is not eligible for the agricultural permits announced this week because he lives hundreds of kilometers from his New South Wales property. Yeah, they want sheep on a plane. Uh, and some places they are actually doing that in order to get around these restrictions. So there's there's more to the story if you want to get into the notes and you want to see this. Um, but I, I wish I had brought this up with, with Dean yesterday. One of the points that he made in our interview was that before this, before before coronavirus, the uh, the provincial borders in Australia were largely irrelevant, and now they are they are um, enforced checkpoints and huge economic restrictions. Quick story next from Newsweek: Officer who died after learning he would be fired for death of black man buried quietly. Um, and as this is a police officer who died in a car crash just hours after being told that he was to be fired over his role in the death of a black man has been buried in a secret ceremony. Now, they don't say now th- this story, just to, to go back, is, is the uh, Ronald Green story. Uh, there was a, a wrongful death suit or is still one going along with this because he was shot three times with a stun gun, brutalized, left beaten, bloody and cardiac arrest. Um, and, and the cops had tried to cover this up, lied about it, originally told Green's family that he died from injuries. From the car crash, troopers later say that there, that there was a struggle with them during the rest. So this came out. It was a really ugly story. And I guess at some point, the uh, the police officer who told you, you know, realized, okay, I'm being fired, you know, was like, okay, this isn't going to be hidden. The, the my, my boys in blue can't protect me behind the thin blue line. And what's not being told in the story is that this is probably a suicide. Now, if the cops had whispered that, well, we suspect, like, who puts it on record? This is a suspected suicide, the police. But they're not going to in this case. You say, oh, yeah, random accident, just a coincidence of timing, single car crash, nobody else involved. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm covering this. This was in the Producers Club pile from last weekend. But um, I don't I don't want to see cops committing suicide, but I don't want to see, and, and I, I want to empathize with them. As, as victims of propaganda themselves being lied to about their fellow Americans being led to this kind of violence. And then, you know, like I, I feel, I feel for this cop as a uh, police suicide, the same way like a veteran commits suicide after realizing the horrors of what they were a part of in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or wherever else they were deployed. Um, you know, suicide in veterans in, in World War II and Vietnam coming home, major problems then too, just not as, not as well reported on. And, you know, I see that this this is a police suicide uh, of, a, of a similar nature, of, well, uh, except he's actually escaping real accountability 
uh, whereas individual troops don't get charged for war crimes usually. And uh, there's a certain cowardice to that, but there's there's a, a bigger tragedy that that really uh, puts blame on the shoulders of the policymakers that that lead this to be possible. So another story that they want to cover from the producers' club. We'll get through a couple of these quickly. BusinessInsider.com: The U.S. military is quietly killing terrorist leaders in Syria with its secret missile packed with swords. And that's a little dramatic, but uh, the, here's the, the highlights. The U.S. military has been quietly eliminating terrorist leaders in Syria with the Hellfire AGM-114-R9X, a non-explosive Hellfire missile that kills its enemies by crushing them with 100 pounds of metal or by cutting them apart with the swords stored inside. And you think from this, like, wait, they got swords and put them in a missile, like, what, what, what are they? What, where are they getting these swords? Are these just metal blades? And it's like, yeah, not even really swords so much as uh, built-in metal blades that stick out from this missile um, in, in like a cross pattern. The most recent strike, according to the New York Times, thank you, CJ, beautiful graphic there. Um, the most recent strike, according to the New York Times, was about two weeks ago to eliminate a senior attack planner for Al-Qaeda. The R9X weapon designed to reduce civilian casualties first became Public knowledge when the Wall Street Journal reported its existence in May 2019, but its development began years earlier. Now, you know, I want to get down one more thing about this um, this story because I think it has. Does it say how much it costs, CJ? Does this article? I want. This is like um, no. Wow. Okay. So let's ask Google. Um, by the way, they have some fun names for this. Um, what were they called? The Ninja Bomb or the Flying Ginsu? Yeah, like the Ginsu knives, Ginsu knives. Um, but let's see, R9X. Let's ask Google. How much does R9X cost? And it's it's funny how open this is. But did you already pull that up while I was doing that, TJ? Is that what you just did? Is that another? AGM-114. Um, yeah, okay, I've got it. I, I can't read it on your screen, but yeah, a unit costs $70,000. Is that what you got there, CJ? Yeah. What could you do with $70,000? How many terrorists could you buy off for $70,000? Like, in, in most of these countries, $70,000 would be like, I don't know, it's probably $700,000 for you in the United States, like in terms of life-changing effects. I mean, you look at the money that they put into this weaponry, it's really disgusting. I want to celebrate because I've said, I've said before, uh, when the government has the technology to just kill any human being on earth with the push of a button, and they, they no longer have an excuse to invade a country because of terrorists. And so that's a good thing. Um, and, and one of the cool things about this weapon allegedly, right, in comparison to prior models, is that this is actually a non-explosive weapon. It's an impact blade weapon. It's like, well, at least it's going to cut up, you know, any human being that's in, the, you know, the radius of these blades. Boom, yeah, you're going to die. Or it says in the article, or feel like you got crushed by an anvil falling from the sky. Yeah, um, you know, that, that sounds about right. Uh, but again, this is not a market answer because the market answer is take that $70,000 and end world hunger, Edu educate their children. Um, 
you know, provide internet con- connectivity. Remember, only 42% of the world has internet right now. So the world's population is, is regular access to the internet. You know, anyway. Um, I had a couple more stories, but I don't know. Let's, let's wrap it up with that. CJ, you want to get on stage? Let's get some military commentary from uh, from our producer, executive producer, CJ. And Jim, let's get Jim up here at the same time to wrap this up with comments uh, before we go to the good news, shall we? And we'll be just a few minutes over time today. Just a little bit. CJ, do you have thoughts on the missile? Um, the yeah, I absolutely love you know, it. it. Hold on, is it, is it Ginsu or Jinsu? I don't care what it's called. It's called an anvil drops on your head from the government. Come on. That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Yeah, so, um, no, when I I think about something like this, when I go, okay, uh, the government can just declare you a terrorist, can just say you're the enemy, and America will cheer as we do this. I mean, swords, what? I, I mean, I, I mean seriously. This no, but that's clever. The swords thing, in and of itself, isn't that a good thing? That like, if we want to kill a terrorist at a wedding party, we don't have to kill everybody standing within ten feet of him. Maybe just cover <laughs> people standing that's, right next to him. That's how accurate these things are until there's collateral damage, Adam. Yeah, and but then, there's less of it. It's still progress, isn't it? I mean, I'm not saying that it's the answer. It's still horrific. Uh, but it's violence at the hands of government through taxation. So, all right. I'm. I mean, I'm. I, I'm not. I'm not disputing that at all. I'm. I'm just going to celebrate that, in, in the sense that technology renders government obsolete. Already, we see te- this technology rendering war obsolete and and rendering collateral damage a lot less significant. Peace through uh, fear. I mean, I, <laughs> Lovely. Okay. I'm, I'm, I, I, yeah, there's that. Okay, now that's different. And, and <laughs> you know what that – see, what, what I wonder is, like, why why spend money on these massive – because these are being fired from predator drones, right? And, you know, you want to talk about, like, what's the actual cost of the missile, $70,000? What's the cost to deploy one? When you add up, like, fuel and maintenance – and I, I'm pretty sure that's a predator drone. It might be a different model. It doesn't really matter. But – that, that's a drone that's worth tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, or I shouldn't say worth, costs the American taxpayer that much money itself. Now, I know I'm the American taxpayer to drop anvils on your head from the sky. You remember that scene from Independence Day when they had that, like, secret bunker and it was like, what, do you really think they spent $50,000 on a wrench, $20 million on a toilet? You know, it's like, oh, yeah, this is where the money's going. Maybe it's just being siphoned off somewhere else. Um but what what I think is coming that is scarier is that you're just going to have normal drones that just, like, shoot poison darts out of the sky. Like, they're really going to be that precise. It, it's, like, when – and I hope that this is something – like, I, I want to see this used by, by voluntary replacements for law enforcement, that you have a drone that can drop out of the sky, that can, you know, be pointed at the back of your neck and drop something on and, like, verify your identity in a split second and inject, uh, you know, something that slowly disables you uh, so, so that you're, you know, you're not injured at all and in, in being apprehended if you're, if you become a threat or something like that. And, and that's how we stop people. And I think that's, you know, the hand of government. well, no, I said voluntary replacement for law enforcement. And I think when we have that, even if it's local governments at first that have that technology, imagine, a lo- imagine somebody invents 
this device for a cop that's cheaper than a handgun, that's a laser pointer that you point at someone and pull the trigger and a drone, however it is, like drops a cargo net on them, peacefully, completely disables them, and there's no need for direct... government through taxation. I'm just trying to follow your plan, that's all. <laughs> well, my, my plan is... is Gcj, don't be such a goddamn anarchist. You know, let's have some, let's celebrate the baby steps in these transitions. And I think some of them are big. I, I think, um, and I think a lot of them we don't even. I, and Cj, you've heard me talk about this. I think sometimes we don't see them until we get to look with with the Adam versus the man historical perspective and hindsight. As much as we want to rail against the horrors of Iraq and Afghanistan. Compared to Vietnam, pretty big step down. Compared to World War II, huge step down. And the the scale of the evil that government is able to get away with gets less and less, and technology drives this. I think it's just, yeah, there's a lot of different things you can look at with this story, and there's plenty of evil, but I, I, I still want to celebrate this as something that vindicates this bigger, important part of my worldview. Is this the part where I just say I agree with you? I mean, I, but again, Adam, we're talking about a government's de-escalation of violence. If it has to be violent, then if that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah. But, I, I mean, eventually, it's like, it's, it's like with body cams. You know, are you upset that cops wear body cams because they're cops? No, I want them to wear body cameras. I prefer they wear a a thing on their head with a 365 camera that as they're uh, walking the streets, it's publicly broadcasting. Yeah, no, it should it should get we, yeah no no it should. And, and I also it want them to that shirt that says uh, that, that says paid to kill you if necessary. <laughs> so in the same sense, if government is going to have to kill people, I'm glad that they they don't have the excuse of dropping daisy cutters and nuclear well, bombs so, anymore. But when do they use it on U.S. Uh, citizens? And and before you know it, the government's just killing you and yeah. and again, America. No, so this right. And to, to to play the pessimistic side of this, you go well. The war comes home. They're not making the global war on terror. They're making a, a pandemic hoax instead. Yeah, so anyway, of course. Any, any producer notes for today before we do comments and wrap up with the good news? It, it's good to be back, um, and I appreciate the the birthday messages. But uh, as you know, uh, I have been working on this lovely website, uh, adamversustheman.com, and uh, we will be uh, clicking the Patreon link. And you can join our Patreon. Uh, what is it? Ten dollars? Is that where it's at? To be in the producers that, club. Uh, we also we also have a uh, producers club code for our uh, shop at Adam versus the Man as well. So if you're in the producers club, there's a a, a a secret code for producers club that gets you a deal at AdamVersusTheMan.com, and uh, yeah, you can get all our merch there. Uh, I am personally getting this, uh, where is it at? It's on here somewhere. It is the Adam versus the Man jacket, if I'm not mistaken. It's in this big-ass store somewhere. 
But, uh, yeah, I'm getting the jacket. Adam, I think you wanted this beanbag chair. Hell, yeah. Uh, and uh, that's already ordered. And, uh, yeah, I think Jim wanted his Jim Freedom sleeve. But we have a lot of different items. We just sold a tie-dye T-shirt to a producer club member. Uh, I mean, I could talk all day long about the website. And uh, where's the jacket that I was getting? It's a really nice winter jacket. Like, it's a – oh, there it is. It's this one. I'm getting this portable jacket right here sent in to myself. It comes with a little bag right here it can zip up in. It also comes in gray if you really like gray, but – yeah, good to be back, though. Good to be back. Go, go to com and buy something. Help us support the show. Join our Patreon. Uh, and I'm glad you really liked your mugs. I think these are great, Jim. you got to get one, too. And uh, that's all I got for today, Adam. Good to be back. All right. Great to have you back. Jim, what do we have from the audience? We All right. Well, uh, from the comments, what I wanted to point out, I actually tried it while you were in the middle of that last article. Noble Phoenix says, did you see the video where people ask Google who the third-party candidates are, and Google and Siri will not say or let you know? It's interesting because, like I, yeah, like I just said, I said, hmm. So I said, hey, Siri, who's the third-party candidate this year? And she says, this is what I found on the Internet. And not, not one word in the by text or any of the texts had the words Joe Jorgensen. It was all articles to, to stupid shit about the election. It's that's crazy. That's a whole nother level that I never even considered. I, I'm excited for this technology. I can't wait till we have an honest version of it. Yeah. Uh, yep, for sure. And Noble Phoenix also has. There was no other entries except maybe this one. If you consider it an entry, he says you should debate Dave Smith on voting for Dr. Joe Jorgensen, or debate Mike the Cop on volunteerism. Is 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 David Smith actually saying don't vote for Jorgensen now? Mm, that, that might be interesting. Um, but yeah, I guess that's it for debate suggestions. Uh, what was the other one? Trump. No, no, the second one in that comment. Oh, um, Mike the cop. Yeah, who's Mike the cop? I'm not sure. It might be a YouTube channel or something. I don't know. It sounds Mike, familiar. It says, yeah, but yeah let's do it. Um, so, yeah, congratulations for winning uh, our Phoenix contest. Is his name. Yeah. Uh, we've had some great comments from Noble Phoenix. And, uh, yeah, if you want to get involved, check out makethemdebate.com. And, uh, and you can help us set up the next one. The one with Dario Rahim was a big success. Any other, uh, anything else to share, Jen, or from the audience? Uh, well, just lastly, Noble Phoenix chimed back in. He said, yeah, he, he says to not vote for Jorgensen because of the anti-racism tweet. So that would be the topic of your debate. Hopefully we can get that going. Sounds like it would be a good one. I'm sure you could. Uh... I mean, it sounds like a stupid debate, but I'll do it. Necessary. <laughs> so but Noble Phoenix. very necessary. Email me, Jim, at thefreedomline.com, and we'll get you connected with the uh, Producers Club for for participating in our debate debate challenge and there. Finally, if you want to join us tomorrow, Cigars and Sunsets, we'll be doing it again with the JSK Nug. J- CJ's got it up there, cigarfederation.com. 
Promo code ADAM10, ADAM, all caps, one zero, gets you 10% off. So let's wrap this up with the good news. On this day in 1880, John Philip Sousa, who later invented the Sousa phone, became leader of the United States Marine Corps Band. I know that's really good news, but a nice historical mile. So 1926, on this day, everything happens for a reason. Wiley Post, who became the first pilot to fly solo around the world, had an accident that cost his left eye, but the settlement money bought him his first aircraft. On this day in 1957, Cyprus and Nigeria gained their independence from the U.K. Sorry, on this day in 1960, and Ghana on this day in 1957. On this day in 1961, Roger Maris hit a 61st home run of the season for the New York Yankees, breaking, breaking Babe Ruth's record of 60, set in 1927. On this day in 1964, the Japanese Shinkansen bullet trains began the first high-speed rail service. On this day in 1964, the free speech movement was launched on the UC Berkeley campus. On this day in 19... And that's where we get the famous speech... Uh, Oh, now I forget the name of the guy. I hate to misquote it, but you know, you've got to put your, your body on the wheels and the levers and tell the people who operate the machine that if it, if it can't be operated humanely, will not be allowed to operate at all. So I'm really butchering that. Um, but, yeah, it was a good quote. Um, on this day in 1979, the United States returned sovereignty of the Panama Canal to Panama. On this day in 1982, the year I was born, the first CD player was released by Sony for consumer use of compact discs. Wow. Historical perspective of technology from my short little lifetime of 38 years. I remember what it was like to have a CD player to you. 31 years ago today, thousands of East Germans received a triumphant welcome from fellow Germans after communist leaders agreed to let them flee to the West. West German Foreign Minister Hans-Dietrich Genscher made the dramatic announcement the day before in Prague, telling 4,000 refugees in camp at the embassy that they were being allowed to emigrate by train to the West. In the aftermath of World War II, Germany had been split in two with the eastern side forced to live under the heavy-handed authoritarian occupation of the Soviet Union. Germany celebrated Unity Day on Thursday. Remembering the events three decades ago that led to the fall of the Berlin Wall in November and the reunification of the nation the following year in 1989. And that's it for our news today. Thank you so much for joining us. Peace and love, y'all. Choose happiness. Be excellent to each other.